1: In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Support for this show
2: comes from best-selling author and master energy healer Carol Tuttle, and Dressing Your Truth, the effortless makeover program that unveils true, beautiful you to the world. Experience your life-changing transformation at DressingYourTruth.com. From Spirituality and Health Magazine, I'm Rabbi Rami, and this is Essential Conversations. My guest today is clinical psychologist and MIT professor Sherry Turkle. Dr. Turkle is the founder and director of the MIT Initiative on Technology and Self and the author of five books, including a trilogy of three landmark studies on our relationship with digital culture. The books are The Second Self, Life on the Screen, and Alone Together. Her newest book, Reclaiming Conversation, The Power of Talk in a Digital Age, is reviewed in the September-October issue of Spirituality and Health magazine. Sherry Turkle, welcome to Essential Conversations.
1: to be here.
2: The very first thing I thought we would deal with is this reference from Henry David Thoreau where he says I had three chairs in my house one for solitude two for friendship and three for society and that I mean you use that at the very very right in the table of contents page and it comes up I think various times in the book why that reference what does that say to you why why did you pick that?
1: Well because that quote from Thoreau is really a quotation about the power of conversation, the virtuous circle that conversation creates. Because when you're alone in conversations with yourself, you gather yourself so that you come to conversations with other people, both one on one, the conversations of friendship, and one to many in the conversations of society. You know, with some authenticity, you know, knowing who you are, so you're not just looking to the crowd for a definition of the self. And then Thoreau understands how it's in conversations with society and with friends that we learn how to have the conversations of solitude and self reflection. There's kind of a virtuous circle of, of, going inward in order to go outward and then learning from the conversations with friendship and with the social to be able to enrich our internal conversations. And in Walden, he, he describes that through the metaphor of the three chairs, and I use that metaphor to talk about the power of conversation and essentially to make the point that we can't lose the, converta- the conversations of solitude Um, if we want to have powerful conversations of friendship, politics, and society. And of course, I think that our phones and our constant disruption are interfering with those conversations of solitude.
2: Let's take up this notion of knowing who you are. You have a a colleague at MIT, I'm assuming, Mm -hmm. who talks about The forgetting of the authentic self you mentioned that she worries that social media is shaping her sense of self that sense she's performing for Twitter she's performing for Facebook not just on Twitter and Facebook but maybe for Twitter and Facebook and I'm wondering if we aren't always doing that and maybe even doing that in solitude is there a self that isn't performative
1: well you know there's a question of degree Before there was Twitter, before there was Facebook, before there were cell phones or, you know, telephones, we always, we always created a self in the presence of others and we always were performing in some sense for other people. What's different now and what my friend, my colleague at MIT is reflecting on is that she, she spends, she spends her day actively constructing and thinking and and creating and editing and curating this performative self in other words it's 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 become her preoccupation and it's become the main way in which she relates to other people that's how she feels in a way that she feels that the 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 sort of natural conversations in which she She felt that she was revealing herself to another in the face to face conversations of friendship. Those are starting to fall away because she's almost preferring the safety of these curated conversations, these conversations in which she gets a chance to edit and to retouch and to, you know, create the better self. And it's st- and I include her in the book because she's an articulate representative of something I found a lot of people were talking about.
2: So it's really interesting this notion of uh, created self that we put out through these various media. I absolutely agree. I know for myself, it's and not I just have-
1: created; it's curated. Because it used to be that you you know created it, but now you actually curate it. You send out the, the pictures you like, the objects you like, the, you know, you take a picture of the dinner that you just ate when you arrange the food a certain way. I mean, you, you curate a life that then you show to other people. So it's quite elaborate and, and quite time-consuming. It becomes part of the texture of your life.
2: I get a sense that it's like an unauthorized autobiography.
1: (laughs) (laughs) No, it's the ultimate authorized autobiography. That's the trouble. Okay. okay,
2: (laughs) Well, uh, the reason I said unauthorized, it's not something that I'm doing in solitude. I'm doing it for this Uh audience. It's like they're dictating I mean, I have over 40,000 Twitter followers and Uh I have a Twitter persona and I try to be witty and funny and, you know, that's my Twitter persona. Very different than my blog self and very different than the books I write and very different than the lectures I give when I'm standing in front of, you know, up on a stage. So the question for me is, well, which one of them is me? I haven't got a clue, actually, which right. one of them is me.
1: That would like a great New Yorker cartoon. I mean, that's a little bit the dilemma of the modern age. You know, you stand before these different versions, and you say all of them are on screens, and you're now perplexed by the the reflections that come back to you on these different, on these in these different apps on these different screens. You know, which app, you know, which app is the real app? Of course, it's a mixture. The truth is that it's a mixture, but you're more likely to get I think my contention in in reclaiming conversation is that most people find, my research shows that most people find that they're more likely to regain a sense of empathic connection, both with other people and with themselves, when they're in face-to-face communication with other people, that then they can kind of take back into a solitude where they're reflecting on, who they had before them in a dialogue that was unmediated. That's the result of my work, that if you really want to think about who am I unmediated, you would not line up your apps, but you'd be more likely to have a conversation with a trusted friend, partner, family member, and engage in dialogue and then reflect on it.
2: Even then, do you find that people will be different selves? You know, when I'm engaging with my son, I think there's probably one performative self when I'm engaging with my wife, another when I'm engaging with a student. I'm trying to get a sense of, or do you think there's a core self behind all of this? Or is it all just narrative? We make up these selves to speak to the situation in which we find ourselves.
1: I think there are different narratives that we create for a child, for a spouse. This is the meat of the psychoanalytic Of the disciplines of conversation in which I've been trained, psychoanalysis, sociology, but I think that from these narratives uh, we learn to extract uh, a sense, you know, a sense of the self that is creating these narratives, so that we can, you know, so that we we feel a sense of connection to the creator of the narrative, and. I think what's different or what can become different in the life on apps is first of all the fact that it encompasses kind of the full day of switching app to app, you know, switching back and forth, this kind of multiplicity of creations and also the constant editing to get it right. That was a very, very big part of what my interviews came up with, that your son Even if you're creating a persona, you think you're creating a persona for him. You slip up, you make mistakes, you're not as good at it as you think you are. When you're writing your persona online, people spend a lot of time getting it right and maintaining this fantasy that they can somehow get it right. And that notion of getting it right starts to be part of our narrative of what a self should be.
0: Want to fearlessly explore your creative spirit? Join artist Susie K. Edwards for Path of the Butterfly, a weekend workshop at Omega Institute's beautiful campus in Rhinebeck, New York, May 24th through 26th. Experiment with a variety of art forms, engage in mindfulness, walking, and silent meditation, and discover a new and free-flowing creative vision. This workshop is for beginners and professional artists
1: Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. In a way that really interferes with our compassion for ourselves, because actually we need compassion for ourselves and we usually don't get it right. And compassion for other people who, you know, in their native state, uh, Don't get it right at all. And so, what I'm finding is different, because of course I am saying that something is different here. What I'm finding is different about this new curated performative life online is this indulgence of the fantasy of getting it right. Um, And I think that's something we need to reflect on because it, it fits into a fantasy in our culture about being able to live the kind of perfect life the life without slip-ups, the life without mistakes.
2: You mentioned compassion, you mentioned empathy a couple of times, yes. it seems like that's what we're losing because the technology lacks it, I guess, and so there's no room for it. I mean, you have emoticons, it, it's appalling that the richness of human emotion has to be dumbed down to emoticons.
1: Well, there's studies show that over the past 20 years there's been a 40% decline in all the markers for empathy among college students you know attributable with it with the most dramatic decline in the past 10 years attributable to the use of digital um, technology and in in studies of um, a camps, you know sleepaway camps where they have no digital devices allowed studies show that in only five days at a camp you can get those markers to start dramatically rising again and when you ask how does it happen It happens because the kids talk to each other. So I I say that that for the for the thing that is failing us most and conversation is the talking cure. For empathy, which is what's failing us most, conversation is the talking cure. It's the way we develop empathy, it's the way we train ourselves to be sensitive to other people, to be attentive to their to their voice, their posture, their their body language, their eye contact, the the, the shifts in their voice, the, and if we, we if, if we just take all of that stuff out and not practice, it's not surprising that we lose it. But it's a it, conversation is the most human and humanizing thing that we know how to do. and You just can't kind of take it away and think that everything is going to be the same. I'm okay. very optimistic, well. but we got to get to it.
2: I don't know if I'm pronouncing this professor's name right or not, or if you know her personally, but at MIT, mm-hmm. you have a colleague, Dr. L. Kalubi. She uh, has this project going on at MIT, or actually it's a program, I think, Affectiva. Mm-hmm. And the idea is that our smartphones are going to be able to read the body language, read our faces, and be mm-hmm. able to respond to us, mirroring back our feelings. So Siri could say to you, you know, you look down today. I mean, mm-hmm. that freaks me out.
1: There was an article in the New York Times on the day that we're speaking that talked about Barbie toys for girls that pretend to have feelings and emotions and say to you, I had a bad day today. I'm having um, trouble. I'm jealous of my girlfriends. How are you with your girlfriends? I mean, you know, toys that pretend to have feelings and emotions and ask you about theirs. I'm really against these deceptions because you can't learn empathy from something that doesn't have any and that is simply pretending to have. So we have to ask ourselves, why are we creating objects that are pretending to have empathy, that can't teach us empathy, that we can't learn empathic response from, when really we just have to lift up our eyes and talk to each other?
2: So, how do you answer what, it?
1: I mean, it's because we've gotten so used to looking to technology for solutions instead of looking to people for solutions. And that's why I call my book Unapologetically Reclaiming Conversation. I don't consider it a retro book, I consider it an assertion that we have to reclaim the basic human thing of looking to other people for what only humans can give us.
2: Which just begs the question, again, why are we afraid of the basic human thing? Affectiva is going to be something that I'm going to buy for 99 cents or $1.99, or maybe it'll be a free app. The assumption is it'll sell, it'll make a lot of money one way or another, that people are going to want this, that somehow people prefer the faux self to the real self.
1: You have to say, what's the appeal? Yeah.
2: What's the what's appeal? What's the
1: appeal? Okay, the first appeal is that it's completely predictable. In other words, we're having a conversation, and not so theoretically, you could ask me a question that could upset me, where I haven't thought of the answer, it really challenges my way of thinking, Uh, I don't deal with it in a satisfying way, I could get thrown. And if you get into personal material, certainly we know that a friend or a therapist or a family member often asks that question that throws us and when relationships that keep us up at night and a program can't do that because we're not in relationship to it. So I think that people are really in the first instance learning the habit of when you deal with programs you can avoid some of life's on the one hand boring bits because the world of programs can be constantly entertaining as people are not and second they can be predictable and don't have to be upsetting you can turn them off you can turn away and I think that that's always been what's been rough about human relationships here are faux relationships that don't offer this downside Now, understanding why something is appealing doesn't mean that it isn't also dangerous and if we teach this to our children they'll never grow up to be the children we want them to be the loving complete human beings we want them to be
2: I think this is really cogent, this notion that what we're afraid of is messiness. What we want is predictability, and life doesn't provide that, but that's what we want. I mean, you know, as a professor of religion, when you look at religions, and I talk to people who are engaged in their religion, their religion provides them with predictability. If they do X, they'll get Y, and if they, and if Y doesn't show up, they've got a backup theory why they didn't get it, but They never challenge the predictability of their faith system. And here, its I think it's very similar. People just are afraid of, you might say, freedom. I mean, Eric Fromm's book, Escape from Freedom. We just Mm -hmm. don't want to deal with the fact that we are free, and that means, you know, messy. And you said you were an optimist, but you must have bad days. So I want to talk to you as if this was a terrible day, and you lost your optimism. I want to talk to the pessimistic Sherry Turkle. Let's assume for a moment that no one listens to you, nobody wants to reclaim conversation, that we as a postmodern spectacle-addicted species fall ever more deeply into the rabbit hole of technology. What happens to us? What are you trying to stave off? What kind of techno-apocalypse are you trying to save us from?
1: My bad day begins with elder care where elderly people are tended to by robots where they try to tell these robots the story of their lives and the robots pretend to listen and the elderly people really aren't heard. So at the most crucial moment where you deserve to have the story of your life listened to, nobody's home to listen. And the day ends with a young child talking to an imaginary robot friend, being unable to learn what it means to have a friend and to feel the pain and troubles of another person and to learn that that person is interested in your pain and troubles because you're talking to an object that is just pretending to have lived a life. We never learn the basic. At the beginning and the end of the life cycle, we cheat ourselves out of what's most human. You know, We have everything in place to make decisions that would put us in that world, but I think that we're so close to it that I think we can see it, and I don't think we're going to take that step.
2: Well, we will end on that point, that hopeful note that we won't take that step because I have to go and and recharge my (laughs) robo-dog.
1: You're going to go Uh, reclaim conversation. (laughs) Don't you recharge your
2: robo-dog on me. Yeah, I, I hope that's right. You are more optimistic than I am, but I really appreciate this conversation and definitely the work that you do. Thank you very much for being with us. Thank you. Support for this week's edition of Essential Conversations is provided by best-selling author and master energy healer, Carol Tuttle, and Dressing Your Truth, the effortless makeover program that unveils the true, beautiful you to the world. Experience your life-changing transformation at dressingyourtruth.com. Essential Conversations with Rabbi Rami is a project of Spirituality and Health magazine. Visit spiritualityhealth.com and subscribe to the magazine in either print or digital formats, suitable for any tablet or smartphone, and download the iTunes app for this podcast. After you read the magazine on your smartphone, put it away and talk to somebody about it. Essential Conversations is produced by Corinne Johnston and our program coordinator is Al Matassi. I'm Rabbi Rami. Thanks for listening.